for the very first volume of the New Thinking Aloud Dialogue series, Is There Life After Death? Publication date is June 1st. Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. And welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is the life and work of the great writer H.G. Wells. My guest is my good friend James Tunney, who is author of many books, including The Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution, and The Mystery of the Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism. He's also written two dystopian novels, Blue Lies September and Ireland, I Don't Recognize Who She Is. His most recent book is Plantation of the Automatons, Rule of an Automaticity Loop. James lives in Gothenburg, Sweden, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, James. What a pleasure once again to be with you. Great. Great to see you, Jeff. I'm looking forward to a very juicy conversation today. Well, I think it will be because our previous conversation was about Orson Welles, who had a relationship with H.G. Wells, uh, whom we'll be talking about today. And before that, we did an interview on C.S. Lewis, who also... um, I gather, wrote his great novel, That His Hideous Strength, and in a way in opposition to H.G. Wells. Yes. In many ways, H.G. Wells is one of the defining figures of the 20th century and the 21st century. So uh, the dystopian uh, type of novel uh, really came in response to his work on When Sleepers Wake in 1899. So all the work including the Russian Zamyatin with We and Aldous Huxley, George Orwell, C.S. Lewis, Anthony Burgess. They're all responses to H.G. Wells. So on that alone, he's the kind of father of dystopia, although we can trace it back to, to Plato and consider it the, op- the opposite side of utopia. But he's a very, very significant figure, and a lot of people don't understand how significant he is. And you've written two dystopian novels yourself. Would you say he's been a uh, formative influence in your own work? I kind of uh, worked backwards in many ways. I-, I was intrigued about why London is at the center of all these stories. And in particular, uh, we've talked about before in two previous interviews about Russell Square and about the, the, the River Fleet and that area North London. And he lived there. He lived and, and was very much associated with uh, Euston Road. He lived around Regent's Park. He lived beside Russell Square. Uh, he lived in Camden. He lived all around that area. So his, his ghost is there. And uh, again, we, we've, we've discussed why this it was a honeypot area. Uh, he was informed by Mary Shelley, who lived nearby at a different time, of course. And we've talked about how this was the place a few hundred yards away where Lenin met Trotsky for the first time. 
uh, where Yeats lived in a small area. It's really significant. So that that sense of trying to understand why that area was so critical. Bernal lived there. I won't go through all that again. You know the story, Jeff. But um, in so far as he is, he is the father of. Some people say science fiction, although I think we have to go back to Edgar Allan Poe and Jonathan Swift and before that. Uh, but uh, this particular uh, reaction to a utopia, because utopia and your utopia is my dystopia, or my dystopia is your utopia, the two sides of the one coin, uh, probably both based on a myopic idea of, of, of what reality is. But he has really, what we see is that he is the, father of this idea of scientific elite control which underpins uh, the rest of his work apart from the the novels and the popular novels so yes he is there he is there maybe not as consciously because he's an invisible figure in many senses he's influenced so many people and they don't realize but yes uh, i would agree that uh, he is a figure but more specifically, in relation to my analysis of international relations, international institutions, international law and politics, he has become a kind of nemesis, the figure that really kind of anticipated where the world was going and directed it. So in that sense, he's more significant. Well, I think it's very telling that my uh, friend, my former friend at least, Jason Giorgiani, who was a guest on New Thinking Aloud, I think some 35 times, often referred to H.G. Wells and did so in the most positive, laudatory manner, particularly you know, some of his political writings. Uh, yeah, the, the shape of things to come was one particular. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um well, one thing I would agree with him on uh, is that H.G. Wells is an incredibly significant figure, so he can't be ignored. What I suppose we would differ on is whether we agree with the figure or not. Uh, well, we, uh, I would differ, <laughs> no doubt. But I don't differ in relation to understanding the stature and significance of H.G. Wells and how influential. So intellectually, on in, in relation to the uh, the significance of the figure, we'd both be in agreement. In relation to whether we agree with the doctrine he's espousing, I'm very hostile to it. And in fact, I would go so far to say as that this doctrine in its application in the future will probably lead to the death of billions. And after a consideration of over, over years, I think it's a really dangerous doctrine. But uh, in favour of H.G. Wells, uh, he was so industrious, so productive, uh, wrote over 100 books, hundreds of articles every year, and made his case that he is kind of demonstrating that the winner takes it all, and that if people are willing to sit by and let others take control, they will. Uh, so some people would see that this was justification for that will to power, that Nietzschean influence, that uh, th that a lot of people believe in, but I certainly would wouldn't agree with Wells, and I I I'd, would respect his industriousness, his capability, his ability to write popular work, uh, the the impact he has. Sometimes his foresight does not. He's not. He's, he's exaggerated uh, sometimes in relation to his, his power to, or his ability to get it right. But certainly, you'd have to consider anticipations in 1901 as very significant and followed by the open conspiracy 
the, uh, the book, The Open Conspiracy, The New World Order, and The Shape of Things to Come, which was made into a film, as you said, 1933 uh, book. Also, you can see it manifest, and the book I would point to, if anyone wants to understand his views, Wells' views, and the views which are the dominant views shaping the world today. There's a novel in 1926 called The World of William Clissold, and in book five of that, he uses it as a propaganda mechanism to explain the future world state that he wants. I had, up until recently, thought of H.G. Wells as uh, largely a, a neutral figure, but you pointed out to me very graphically that uh, he actually espoused racist and anti-Semitic views uh, that would be unconscionable today. I maybe in his era, the, that kind of uh, language was uh, considered more tolerable. But in in my opinion, uh, he went way overboard, and it, it's given me pause to uh, reevaluate all, all of his writings. But I, I suppose, though, for our viewers who may not be that familiar with H. G. Wells, since he he died before I was born in 1946, his most famous novel was probably his first novel, The Time Machine. There are an awful lot of people that support H.G. Wells. And if, as I am going to argue, uh, that he is the world's most successful revolutionary, that he is, his vision is dictating where we are today, it's not surprising that the propaganda machine is going to defend him. So there's gaslighting goes on. that When you say, well, these seem to be very racist views, they're clearly racist, uh, about Jews, about people with different uh, color skin early on, and particularly about Catholics. Uh, Catholics were even a bigger hatred of his and a deep hatred. And, you know, coming from a Catholic background, uh, I understand this. I mean, it's uh, Christianity, going back to the Daniel, or going back to the lion's den, it's been going on a long time and it seems to be permissible to express anti Catholic views, even though this leads to death. It, led, it leads to death in Ireland. We've seen plenty of it. Uh, people, it, it, it's easy to kind of project the misconduct of priests onto the whole Catholic uh, belief system. Uh, for example, it's remarkable that uh, in the Black Lives Matter context, nobody is concerned about the, the killing of 50 people in Nigeria in a church uh, this, this year uh, or, or, or a few months ago, uh, last year. Uh, no, it, it's hardly even reported. Uh, and when it's reported by politicians, it's quite incredible. There's a consistent thing with kidnappings uh, in Africa of, of Catholics, uh, with shootings. They say it's all down to climate change. It's quite incredible. So there's this, this, this incredible gaslighting going on. But his hatred of Catholics was manifest uh, early on, and he continued it throughout his life. He believed that the Catholic Church was, was the one that had to be destroyed. And of course, he's right in relation to his religion of science. And Gramsci came after H.G. Wells. So the influence of Gramsci was later than, than H.G. Wells. So, so he's even important in, in, in that context. And when we come to uh, 1943, he writes a book, Crooks and Sata, uh, which really the thesis is, why don't we bomb Rome? So he sees the war as an opportunity to bomb Rome. Now, by Rome, he meant the Vatican City, and he lays out, as usual, anti-Catholic diatribes. So, of course, the Vatican City is an independent state. It was neutral in the war. But 
this is the kind of mentality that comes. They, they often, or him and, and people around him, or supporters, often appear to be preaching uh, peace, and then they, they're willing to use the, the, the violence of the greatest scale, because the means justify the end, because it's utter Machiavellianism, because it's not tied down by, by any principle. So uh, the time machine uh, in 1895 was, was a, a major breakthrough for him. He'd been writing hundreds uh, of articles. He'd come in from a background uh, as, as a, a teacher, a science teacher. Uh, and he describes himself as a journalist in many contexts. So he's a writer. Uh, in many ways, he doesn't see himself totally as a novelist. And many novelists don't see him as an, a, a proper novelist in some uh, context. And he had disputes with people like Henry James over that. And he wasn't real, well regarded in some ways as an artist. So he described himself as a writer and a journalist, although he was he was brilliant at what he did. Um, and the time machine, it's important to mention that he went to... He got a scholarship to go to the normal school of science, and norm, I think, is an important word in this context in Kensington, where he studied in from 1883 to 1884 under our, our old friend uh, Thomas H. Huxley. So he had him as a teacher, and Darwin in the past would have gone into the same lecture room to listen to Huxley talk. So we're right in that nexus of uh, Darwinianism and Huxley X Club moving on to this idea of creating uh, a dispirited notion where science is triumphant and his, where, where using biology uh, as a key thing, as a revolutionary mechanism in fact uh, so the time machine is lauded as a great kind of some way scientific uh, insight, it's a great it's great work uh, I, I like that, that series of work that he did uh, the Time Machine, The Invisible Man, The Island of uh, Dr. Moreau, uh, of course, War of the Worlds, and, and that, that's uh, The First Man in the Moon, that series of, of books, particularly from 1895 to 1901. Uh, and that was what Churchill said, the jam of his work, as opposed to the suet of the, 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 later, the later work, his political work. Now, The Time Machine is lauded for its visionary idea of a time machine, but the idea of time travel is as old as the hills. It goes back to ancient times. So that wasn't what the innovation is in many senses. What he does is he, he creates a bit of an illusion that it's scientific by bringing in the latest, I'm not putting the book down, but just to describe the, uh, to deconstruct it a bit, he brings in the latest scientific thinking about time, and then he, he brings in a device, a literary device, i.e. the time machine, to allow him to time travel. And time travel is well explored in ancient literature. You've gone back to Irish literature of Ushin uh, and Niamh going off to Tirnanog. So uh, the idea, of course, he's not telling us how this time machine would work in any sense. So, so we can't overestimate some of the supposed scientific contributions. He wasn't a scientist, although he was a teacher of science. He was never accepted as a, a fellow of the Royal Society. He was rejected. Uh, that doesn't mean he didn't know a lot about science, or he wasn't very imaginative, or didn't understand where it was going, the tool and instrument of, of, of science. But So he does the, the, the time machine, uh, and he does uh, more all, uh, uh, and that, and he's ex exploring certain themes. Again, the themes were, were established, if you like, going back to Mary Shelley, 
uh, Edgar Allan Poe developed some of these ideas in, in, in the balloon and on the balloon hoax uh, as well. And Edgar Allan Poe also kind of indicated the rubric of the sh how a short story should work, and, and, and Wells followed that. So there are people before him that are kind of ignored. People, they didn't really like Edgar Allan Poe so much afterwards because Edgar Allan Poe didn't believe that scientific progress would solve the problem. And that wasn't part, that, that wasn't consistent with the agenda and the propaganda machine that H.G. Wells w w was part of. So all of his books, in many senses, are acceptable and promoted because there's a shift in society. There's a shift towards technology, mass technology, the value of science, and the, the empire is moving, is moving into a different phase. It had gone through a chaotic period in the late 19th century, uh, the British Empire in particular, through its involvement in foreign wars. And we're, uh, Wells is born in, in 1866, just before dynamite is, is discovered. It was literally an explosive period, the period uh, coming up to the writing of this book. The, Fien the Irish Fenians had got their hands on dynamite and they were, they were using it around important places in, in London and causing havoc. Uh, this is the period of Jack the Ripper as well, the, the kind of mass media, uh, mainstream media provocation of, of the public nervous system. And we also had mass emigration and mass emigration from Ireland and mass emigration from Eastern Europe after the Tsar had been uh, killed, you know, partly with dynamite as well. It was an explosive period. So in this part, I believe, of his hatred is, is anti-Semitism, which people deny, uh, but I think it's quite clear, and his anti-Catholicism was associated with the sense that the empire was going through this this attack. There was aliens, if you like, in London. The aliens were these people coming from Eastern Europe, coming from Ireland, and the Irish ones were kind of almost subhuman. Even when he's talking later on about the Irish Republic, he, he, he talks about spiteful apes. He uses these. And, and that was the, that was a mode of thinking if you classified people in accordance with Huxley's uh, evolution, uh, evolutionary period. But he's, he's very, very successful with his books, very popular. He's brilliant at writing short stories. His books are very popular. So he makes, in, in the last part of the 19th century, he makes his fame, or he becomes famous as a writer of popular works that are exciting, that people like that lays the foundations for many of the themes of science fiction's science fiction later on and that he demonstrates a type of genius in his focus uh, on, on those issues but they're quite different from some of the stuff that came afterwards i did read in in one instance that uh, towards the end of his life i imagine we're talking 1930s 1940s he he was regarded as the most successful writer in the english language which is really quite an attainment not only had he done he contributed to screenplays as well but he he'd written all his books he'd written his uh, short stories He'd written books with Huxley, for example, which were popularized in science, Outline of History and the Science of Life, which had become popular. He'd started off as well early on writing biology textbooks. So uh, he, he, he was writing articles all the time. And by then he was writing articles about politics and world politics. Um, he, he was read early on 
by all the important people and influenced them. So he influenced uh, Churchill, for example, and he influenced all that generation that came in the 20s, uh, Haldane and Bernal and, and Lord, uh, Lord Birkenhead and, and all those. They, they really go back to him. And then there was the reaction to him. So meanwhile, all the books were selling and were popular. Uh, so he was really, really uh, popular and he, he affected people. For example, a person that became an opponent was George Orwell. Now, of course, George Orwell is is a made-up name, is a pseudonym, and and uh, it's interesting that we have H.G. Wells, who's Herbert George Wells, and then a person who admires him very much uh, comes up with a pen name of George Orwell, and I think sometimes is glossed over that that connection. But Orwell turned turned against him, but he they all acknowledged that it was Wells that incited them to write. The same with Lewis and, and Tolkien on their space trilogy and in relation to his reaction to Scientocracy. And people followed on like Arthur C. Clarke that, that believed that Wells was great and fantastic So it, and all the science fiction writers. So, uh, so his sales, his popularity, his meaningfulness to, to that type of domain uh, made him extremely popular and extremely influential. And I guess the idea, you've referred to it as scientism, but really he seemed to be suggesting that uh, ultimately a, a scientific elite would uh, control the world. There would be a worldwide order, a new world order run by scientists rather than other competing figures, let's say religious figures or political figures or business figures. He He felt that the scientists could take control of the whole world order. In fairness to Churchill, Churchill always disagreed with him on this, as did uh, George Orwell. But the idea, and again, the idea is not necessarily original. It goes back to the French Revolution and people like the Marquis, the, the Condor set and uh, uh, Henri de Saint-Simon. And they argued at the time of the revolution for, in a kind of counter-revolutionary way, for a kind of industrialism, a, scient a scientific elite that would run the affairs. And out, it was also an idea of the machine of govern government. And this is an idea that comes true in H.G. Wells' work. He talks about uh, the machine of gov government. And this was the word, the, the concept that was used in the argument in favor of NATO later on. It's, it's, quite, uh, it's quite incredible. So, so he's very, very clear on it. In one book, he describes a, as a group as the samurai, this elite that were going to run the world. So he, he's also, of course, realizing that the British Empire is changing and that really the rulers don't have any allegiance to the British people or to the English or the Scottish. They're, they're not interested in them. They never have been and they never will be. They would use them for their geopolitical and commercial uh, reasons. There's no national commitment to them. So he was also coming from the lower middle class, uh, from a, kind of a relatively uh, not poor but not rich background. So, of course, there was a great elitism associated with social structures, but he understood that science would give him a tool, an instrument to come in uh, and to make uh, to to play a role in in the new endeavor because he understood that the empire had to change, and this was an idea. Where was the empire to go? It, it couldn't rule in the same way, so he focused on this idea 
of turning the empire into what I call the empire of scientism by focusing on the control of technology and uh, corporations to rule the world by an elite. And the book, one book that he, he lays it out in, in 1916 is The Elements of Reconstruction. Uh, where he specifically explains how the the British Empire can transmute itself, and that what he suggests is that the elite, or what can happen is that the British Empire, with the big trusts, the big corporations, can come together to form what he calls the ultimate combination. So he said instead of instead of kind of avoiding business now he's supposedly a socialist all his life he's supposedly a socialist but remember there's different types of socialists and and he's in the vein of of scientific socialism that Stalin was in but he wanted to use the big business so we're talking about a type of black rock Bolshevism if you like that idea of mixing commerce with supposed commitments to to the, the lower class but they're not interested in workers in that book he explains that the empire should transform through control of commerce uh, into what will become the global governance system. And the people that are running it, therefore, are the, the scientists, the technocratic elite, the technicians, the people that subscribe to it. It's not national. Anyone that wants to, that, 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 agree, that agrees with the idea of a scientific elite uh, should be involved. So in many ways it goes back to Plato, and he had read Plato when he was small, when he broke his leg, when he was about seven or something, when he was at home. And he, he began to uh, study these and think about these uh, things. And he also believed that there had been a degree of decadence. Remember, he's writing in the upper class. Remember when he's writing The Time Machine and around there, Oscar Wilde trial is going on. So when we see this idea of a degenerate future ruling class, he's making arguments uh, again about kind of weakened men and uh, in in this, uh, uh, as opposed to his uh, great potency and virility, which he emphasized throughout his life to anyone that wanted to listen. Um, so, uh, yes, he saw an opportunity for himself as well to advocate this way out for for the the uh, the British Empire, and I believe that that has happened. That the empires have come together and transmuted their former their former power into commercial form, which is why we have huge multinational trusts operating in a way beyond government. And he explained that he said, ignore those national governments. We won't use it by we won't uh, do it. Uh, by force against them. We will just disregard them. Now, one important legal point is that when we talked about antitrust before, and you, had anti you have antitrust regulation in the United States in, in, uh, from 1890, there's no worldwide antitrust. So those same companies can do what they will internationally. There's no company uh, that's subject to those global antitrust laws in the same way. So there was space there. So he, this combination of empire and commerce is, is what we're facing today. And the things that he advocated, this creation of a, a world government, it wasn't going to be democratic. He wasn't really interested in democracy. It was just a system of governance. And involved in that would be mechanization, machines. He talks about the world brain in 1937, which kind of anticipates the Internet. These are mechanisms of control. He's, he's an encyclopedist, if you, uh, if you like, going from the Enlightenment, the idea that you get all knowledge together. But this was also an idea that we see 
associated with the Royal Society around the time of the intelligences in 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 Britain, and it's a strategic reason. We could trace it back to Francis Bacon and his idea uh, of the New Atlantis. So he's in that vein of Francis Bacon, uh, and yes, that's it. a scientific elite, a technical elite, uh, commercial elite uh, that control the media. And I believe we've got there today. I believe that that's what all the uh, international organizations are and that many of the international relations theorists have missed it. Although, and I've taught in those schools, I think they've really missed how significant he is and was. I'm under the impression that he may have been very frustrated and disappointed at the time of his death in 1946. He lived long enough to see the beginning of the Second World War, but he wrote uh, a book about the First World War, calling it the war to end all wars. And then I gather he uh, was in favor of the formation of the League of Nations. And he he was, I think, a little bit surprised to see, after all of that, another war break out. People that glorify science are like alcoholics just saying one more drink. There's always one more thing to do and then everything will be okay. You know, that's uh, so, there's a, you know, if we get the atomic bomb, then people will realize that uh, that they won't, we shouldn't have war. So he predicts in 1913 the, uh, the atomic bomb and gives the name the atomic bomb. Uh, for example, and he again, 20 years later, Leo Zillard has the idea of the chain reaction in near the space where where uh, he li- where H.G. Wells lived once. It's quite incredible the, the, these these continuities and the way that the links between them. So yeah, if we have this war, then everything will be okay. Or if we have this massive chaos worldwide, well then, in the shape of things to come, they will accept this new new world order in the form of uh, a great air control that can control the world and bomb the dissidents, especially the religious people, uh, that will take over and get rid of religion, that will get rid of the pesky Catholics. And, uh, and in fairness, he, was, he had an equal hatred for all the religions. They were going to destroy Mecca and close down the holy sites, and they were going to destroy um, Islam. And in fact, the site, it's, it's quite incredible, the site of this in the shape of things to come, of uh, this international air power military industrial complex that's going to rule the world is Basra. He picks out Basra. And so it's a bit chilling when you hear George Bush Sr. talking about the New World Order in 1991. And then we have uh, a war uh, on an illegitimate basis where Basra is critical. It kind of it kind of makes you wonder about these uh, circles in history. Uh, it's, 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 it's a... Chilling in some senses. He was also, as you point out, considered a socialist. And I gather, even though he at times glorified war, he was considered a pacifist at other times. Yeah, he was quite good at uh, at uh, cutting the cloth to meet the suit or whatever expression you want to use. He was quite good at adapting. For example, he never believed, uh, never any serious belief in God in a, a traditional way, although he did write a book called God the Invisible King in 1917, which was really a maneuver. He was trying to pretend he believed in God, as far as I can see. So he has a, a kind of thinly disguised Prometheus as a God. And then later on, he says, well, I, uh, well, it was a kind of mistake 
So he does these manoeuvres. He also gets a lot of credit for his involvement in the human rights uh, movement and coming up to the Universal Declaration. Although, uh, if you look at it in a historical context, he gets far too much credit for that. And he didn't actually believe in human rights because in his later work, he's, he, he's, he, he's suggesting and it becomes clear that he didn't really believe in the human individual. He believed in the human as a species that needed to develop. So his idea is 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 much different different and he uh he he kind of makes maneuvers that was part of a maneuver of a general anglo-american idea of creating a new world order out of the second world war and uh, they they make concessions oh we'll have this human rights thing but if you look at the international legal order the americans and uh well the americans in particular generally exempt themselves from the application of, of responsibility, for, for example, and exempt themselves from, you know, so it's a bit of a cod. It was a strategy, a maneuver um, uh, in, in this context. He did advocate uh, women's rights and, and was often described in, in, in terms of feminist, but uh, he he kind of benefited from that uh, that that liberality in many senses. And he's seen, he seen as that was part of a milieu where he was, uh, getting access to to women that had a, a, a more open view on on sexual matters in many senses, but he did have he did believe that uh, in, in in women's rights in that context and, and would be consistent with a lot of modern senses on that. He always described himself as a socialist, but again we have to be careful because he also talks about an idea of liberal fascism. So in many senses, he he he, he could be put in the category that Philip K. Dick used about left fascism. He's talking about a combined idea which in, is ultimately totalitarian, as George Orwell realised. George Orwell wrote an essay in 1941 on Wells, Hitler and the world state, and he said, well, this system can only lead to slave totalitarianism. He realised that um, that Hitler was implementing many of the kind of ideas. Now, we can't say directly, but it was consistent with uh, the idea of the application of, as he said, aeroplanes, concrete, roads. This is all the the, the stuff of H.G. Wells. And amazingly, Wells went over to Russia three times. He went in uh, 1914, 1920, 1934. And he met Lenin, Trotsky and Stalin. And of course, had good things to say about uh, about them, um, so which is which is quite frightening. Uh, a lot of the intellectuals, a lot of the scientists in Britain loved Stalin, and they continued to do so, even uh, as we've talked about before. Uh, so they couldn't. Uh, this was another thing. In fairness to Churchill, uh, Churchill was against uh, Hitler at a stage when H.G. Wells didn't take him seriously. Uh, Churchill, in fairness to him, a lot of people kind of claim he's, he's a fascist now, although he was the, the one that was leading the, the, the fight against fascism. He identified that, that Hitler was dangerous, uh, and uh, that wasn't H.G. Wells' view. He, he, he thought he was a kind of a stupid lunatic. He was a comic figure. And so he was wrong. On, Wells was wrong on that. Um, he thought the Bolsheviks were okay and defended the Bolsheviks and continued to do so. And Churchill disagreed with him on that and said, you're wrong about that. He said, these are a bloodthirsty group of, you know, totalitarian and, and or words to that effect. And uh, that wasn't accepted. So his political judgment is very suspect. And Churchill was right. Churchill also disagreed 
with him on the use of experts. He said we should never have experts in government. He didn't trust them in that. Now, he, he certainly made mistakes, but anyone in power for that length of time will will uh, distrust them. H.G. Uh, Wells would have seen, uh, it was, was close to Churchill, uh, and they had a relationship early on, communicate, discuss, discussion, these things. But he would have seen uh, Churchill as, as coming from the aristocratic, aristocratic background that, that he did and uh, Wells was a revolutionary he is a revolutionary people don't understand that he, his book The Open Conspiracy is a blueprint for world revolution I believe he has done that he, he is successful and it's so successful that people don't notice it the invisible man became the invisible governance system that Bernays talks about in the 20s and has become the invisible structure that we, we, we will live uh, on today so he was very he was sad and at that stage in 46, he was saying, oh, well, there should be a new species of human. So he's, he's, he's suggesting the shift to transhumanism that others had been talking about as well, which is a, a, a natural follow-on. But, and Orwell, I think, didn't understand how significant, although he, he understood what the consequences, I, I, I think they thought, they also thought that Wells was a failure, but he wasn't, because he had planted the seeds, and those seeds were taken by other people, by other groups. He did work with the uh, League of of Nations Associations, and he did actually get involved, and he had been in the Fabians, so he had played in this, but he also had had contacts, and he did influence people, and I believe they took up his his suggestions, and they implemented it, and that that is one of the reasons why we have international organizations of the form that that we do have today. Well, I recall as a criminology graduate student at at Berkeley, and I think this is generally true of all the social sciences, there was this concept of social engineering and a sense in, in the Department of Criminology and elsewhere that we intelligent uh, sociologists can use our expertise to engineer society and why is it that these uh, reluctant politicians don't see uh, how brilliant we are and how much better society will be if only we were in control yes that, that's a very strong idea and it's predicated on the idea that uh, a materialist idea the idea that we're we're material uh, that we're we're machines that's a clear idea in his book on science, the human as machine, that biology is a machine, that we have to make it more machine-like, we have to have a machine of governments, a governance even as devices, the time machine, machines, 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 everything is machines. So the uh, And he does see, he's consistent with Taylor de Chardin, who's another person I, I criticise, uh, because the the effect of their viewpoint is that we become assimilated into the machine and why wouldn't you be if you didn't have any concept of the human individual so once you abolish this idea of the individual having any connection with any divine thing that there's no supernatural we have a process of de-supernaturalization we take away the idea of spirit uh, well, then we can we can do these things and we can engineer, we can tinker with them, we can manage the, the unruly people. Edgar Allan Poe realized that this was wrong. They had got this wrong and he criticized, he criticized the idea of perfectibility, the idea that the human is perfectible. Uh, Anthony Burgess, in, in another book, 1985, a follow-on from some of his previous work, like A Clockwork Orange, engages in a discussion of what the issue is and he puts it in terms of a conflict between 
Pelagianism and Augustinianism, uh, whereby uh, Pelagius uh, from Britain or Ireland in the fourth century didn't believe in original sin, and uh, Augustine is is kind of criticizing that, and it's, it refers to an uh, an idea about whether we start off with some disposition to do wrong, uh, and if you believe that there's none of that there, you may come to a different result. That was uh, Anthony Burgess's view. So. The subtext of, or the text, uh, subtext, if you like, of Anthony Burgess' at Clockwork Orange is that if we don't have free will to do good or bad, then we're not human. We're dehumanized. And this is a very important factor. Edgar Allan Poe believed that we would always, uh, it was in kind of human nature, that we, uh, we can't, through science, uh, uh, perfect people. Uh, that people hadn't been worse or unhappier 6,000 years ago. It was an illusion. It was a fantasy. And he saw already that this idea of progress was being used to denigrate everything in the past and to have a fetish about the future. So H.G. Wells is a futurist. He didn't like anyone that, that you know, said the future was going to be bad unless it was in, in terms that, that, that suited his agenda. So when he's using a good scientist or a bad scientist, he's still making the case that it's scientists that are most important. And we see this in relation to the recent context on artificial intelligence. For example, and I'll give the credit, credit to the man, Mr. Hinton, who's been studying AI for a long time, suddenly realizes all of a sudden, whoops-a-daisy, that this is a very dangerous thing. Now, I know he's, he's, get, he's, he's getting on a bit, and, and but it's good that he did that. But you say, well, hold on a second. The man down the street could realize that this AI was was dangerous. So uh, they should be going around sackcloth and ashes to some extent, uh, you, you might argue. But but seriously, the uh, the idea, what follows on from some of their arguments is, okay, look, uh, we messed up the thing that we've been working on all the time, getting paid for, we didn't understand it. And because we made this big mistake, you must give us more power. You must have global go. This is the way the argument goes. It's unbelievable, Jeffrey. It's unbelievable. Listen to what they're saying. Uh, so, the uh, scientists can use science to uh, to blackmail us. I'm not saying that about that, that man, but the, the, the institution can uh, use science to blackmail us. Uh, Mumford saw it as a bribe. That technology. Here, here's your your free Zoom, Jeffrey. Oh, it's fantastic. We can communicate across, and then you get assimilated into the system. So, in many senses, there's a there's a big protection racket, uh, and many people want jobs in this big protection racket. And this, uh, this engineering idea is a necessary replacement when you have said that the human is a machine, the society is a machine. Well, then you need the engineers to tinker with the, the people, to, to get them right, to turn them into good people, into standard people. And this is a very dangerous idea. And if you believe that the free will given to us is the essence of our uh, of our nature, well, then you couldn't come up with an idea that we should be conditioned and controlled as the behaviorists uh, have advocated for uh, for generations. Well, as a parapsychologist, I'm particularly interested in literature that addresses paranormal topics, and and of course you find uh, this in a lot of great literature going back to Shakespeare, but you don't find it in H. G. Wells. It, that, that, that's true. I, I I was thinking about that topic because um, it's in relation to the theme of your channel and that, 
and uh, there was some instances that are noteworthy. Um, I think in general, because he came from the normal school of science and that, and, and what I've argued before is with Huxley and that they, they engaged in a process of dispiriting and denying spiritualism. And, and he has a story, for example, H.G. Wells, about, I think it's called a red room or where he's, 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 uh, he's in a room or when it's meant to be haunted and he damages. Anyway, it's a silly story. But the gist of the story, there was nothing there. It was only fear. You know, it's a kind of absurd. Uh, there was nothing in the haunted room. It was only fear, and it's a kind of silly, a silly kind of uh, argument. Um, but there was a lot of interest in literature in the nineteenth century at that time, which didn't get support because there were the, the publishing houses weren't as interested in in this spiritual issue. And of course, this is the context, the time in which we have psychical research and then the attempts to debunk spiritualism. But there are some interesting hints in his in his uh, stories and in his books. Uh, one is in relation to the temp- one little story is the temptation of. Haringey, where, where an artist is painting and the devil appears to him and says, you know, you can, uh, if you give me your soul, I'll give you two masterpieces. And they'd have a, they haggle for a bit, but it's the idea of the Faustian pact. So, I mean, it was, it was on his mind to some extent. Uh, not a great story, but it, it shows that he's thinking about, uh, about these issues. And the Faustian idea, I think, um, is there in a, in a lot of his work. But there was another two stories where he, he, he has seances or, or, or spiritual communication in it. Remember, he's written, he's written hundreds of books, so it's hard to, to, to follow. But one that I found interesting was uh, The Autocracy of Mr. Uh, Pelham, I think it's the name, but yeah. And in this, there's a dream and a, a kind of seance, and the figure is, is uh, inhabited by a world spirit, so you have this possession idea, which is quite interesting, and, and the world spirit was a kind of thing that that H.G. Wells kind of advocated, you know. So it makes it makes you think along along uh, other terms. And there is another, uh, there's another, or, or one of those books where he has a a figure who is inhabited by a Babylonian uh, a Babylonian uh, power. So uh, there, there are some hints. Uh, there of either uh, possession uh, at, a, at a higher level or seances or using the technique so i do wonder whether he had some kind of he had some awareness certainly he looked at the psychical research he had some experience and it would have been the talk of all these these uh, clubs uh, and that but he's setting out with an idea of not advocating this uh, parapsychological thing. He's, he's fighting against it. He's fighting against anything which is spiritual or supernatural. And one point uh, on that is that uh, Jung actually thought that one of his books was very good in relation to demonstrating uh, the subconscious and that. Uh, and it was, um, I think it's called Christina Alberta's father. And he praised him for his awareness of the spirit in some context which is which is a bit surprising uh because he doesn't he doesn't advocate or talk in, in in spiritual terms so there is some sense that he's talking about higher forces but they're not things that we classify in 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 the traditional context and he certainly the movement of science fiction was a movement away 
from the exploration of other figures of that time and a rejection in many senses of the possibilities. And we have this one idea which defines this period is the split in consciousness, that after Darwinianism, we had this uh, difficulty of dealing with the dark side, which is manifested in uh, the picture of Dorian Gray by by Oscar Wilde and uh, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, Jekyll and Hyde, you know, that idea of the split. And it was also about the empire and the East End and the West End and all the immigrants in the East End and all the, the you know, the, the opulence in, in, in the West End. And we had we had this uh, division, which was also associated with the loss of spirit. We have this idea of the alter ego be, becoming common. When we think about all these figures, that, all these figures that played a significant role, Hitler, Trotsky, uh, Lenin, they're all made up names. They all create a different persona than what they originally start off on. It's a, it's a big theme. It's kind of like an alter ego which replaces the spirit that's not there because they have rejected that and they're doing a Nietzschean, a Nietzschean involvement, a will to power. They're making themselves into the superhero. And that was very much an undercurrent in H.G. Uh, Wells, who obviously saw himself as moving uh, to a higher domain. I can imagine that he would have uh, also been aware of uh, the other very popular British writer in his era, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was uh, both in uh, his Sherlock Holmes books, which were, I think, in many ways, the epitome of the triumph of rationalism. And yet Arthur Conan Doyle w was a strong, strong advocate for spiritualism. Again, Edgar Allan Poe also developed a detective story in uh, Ratiocination. But of course, as you suggest and as you know, Arthur, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle is, 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 uh, believes in spiritualism, is an advocate of this. And this wouldn't be something that was consistent with the scientific mind because people like Huxley and that would ridicule that. They, they can't abide the idea that there is any spiritual domain because that defeats the, the the analysis that they've come to the ultra materialist analysis so they have decided that they have decided firstly that uh, like the, going back to the reformation that the catholic church is wrong and they the, you know they changed uh, the, to the protestant religion and, uh, of course there's uh, many reasons for it but uh, then the revolution continues with the french revolution and the enlightenment where we're reducing the idea of uh, this the importance of the spiritual domain and then we get Dar darwinism uh following on just after Hewell and the, the the idea of the scientist is created moving away from natural philosophy so we're getting a sharper instrument uh, all the time so when we come to huxley and his student here hg wells the idea of spirit is anatoma in many senses so uh, and it's forgotten about when people talk about debunking uh, spiritual activity. They they don't look at the incentive of the people to debunk and to go and uh, and or, or to to that they're biased uh, witnesses in, in in many cases or they can be. I'm not saying that they didn't exist, but we have to look at it from from the other side as well. There was people wanting to make sure that these things couldn't happen as well. So. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, of course, was very uh, disposed towards uh, spiritualism, and uh, I, I, that wasn't a viewpoint that um, that H. G. Wells uh, advocated or, 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 or saw as important. Consist because 
the point is that the view, this scientism view, the empire of scientism is a total view. You take everything uh, and, and you leave the rest. It's exclusive. Uh, it is the essence of an ideology. It doesn't bear any uh, involvement. It's hostile to all religions and all spiritualities. Strangely, because it wants to create the religion of science. Of science. Uh, so it's inherent. There is an evangelical aspect, and he had that kind of in his background. So he kind of sees an apocalypse in London with all these emigrants and aliens and the telegraph systems being laid down. And he comes up with this soteriology, this doctrine of scientific salvation, of revolutionary biology, of control of the human form and human society. So uh, in that context, you can't all those things were just illusions and delusions and these spirits, they're just the mind, uh, the mind making mistakes in many senses. So um, that, that's inherent in, in all this system. And that's, that's one of the big reasons why Orwell either, in my view, wouldn't be able to correct, wouldn't be able to correct him because his view was a, a, just a different type of uh, materialism. And in the end, Orwell is saying, well, what about Englishness and what about decency? And, and, and they don't cut any, any butter and, and, or parsnips in, in this context. I guess one of the attractions of materialism is that it provides people with a sense of certainty. They now have the absolute truth and, and they can feel so confident in it that it's perfectly appropriate to completely ignore the Arthur Conan Doyles of, of the world who are arguing for something different because they're obviously wrong and obviously uh, defective in their thinking. If we start off the idea of chaos moving to order, and order was very important for Lenin, for example, as well, is that creating order, and the idea of crystallization, and this is a, this was an idea that H.G. Uh, Wells uses a lot about crystallization. He believed, for example, that you could you could apply it to corporate contexts and to society. So, uh, if as well, then you do away with the individual and talk about a group. And that could be the British Empire with its ultimate combination or the collective. And you focus on humankind. Well, then you don't have to care about the individual. And then you can say in a Machiavellian way, the means justify the end. So there are a few million people over there that we might have to bomb. But the means justify the end. The human in future will be able to proceed. So the idea of conquest is a critical idea. Conquest is a word that comes up again and again. So uh, I presume he had that idea in relation to his attitude towards women. He, he, was, uh, he was always uh, talking about that. And uh, he talks about the, that the great will to live, struggling from the intertidal slime and tr struggling from shape to shape and uh, reshaping itself anew and changing from form to form until it struggles out of the sea or to master the sea and struggles out of the sea to master the land and then struggles to master the air and then finally it, it stands on the earth as a footstool to reach the stars and you have this idea of conquering all the time kind of like that, that the history of the human has been conquering so now we have to conquer the earth 
control the earth and then conquer space and conquer all, all, all this. So it, it's a, uh, I don't like to use the word, but there's a bit of a, a phallocentric kind of uh, idea behind. And one interesting little point on that. Uh, now, I don't care about his, his relationships with women and, and it was a, an area of free love. And if you're going to have equality, you have to kind of apply it and live the, live the life. But uh, he, he was very, he had a particular attitude about that, which, which kind of is kind of consistent with that conquest. So I was talking to Gene Tunney's, communicating with Gene Tunney's son this week, and I was asking him about H.G. Wells. So when Gene Tunney went to Britain, he was a, the world, the world's superstar in the boxing, a heavyweight champion, and uh, he was very interested in literary things. So he met all the, the, the great stars. It, it was a big called celebre. And he said when he went to Britain, he, uh, when he met the intellectuals, he became great friends with George Bernard Shaw. But they, all the intellectuals, uh, when he wanted to talk about Shakespeare, would talk about the, the ring and whether it had been slippy in Chicago or in Philadelphia when they were fighting and all this. Uh, he said the only one that was different was H.G. Wells. He wanted to talk about women, you know. So, so this idea, and, and, and he wasn't interested in, in that, but, but, but this idea, there seems to be this kind of domination, mastery, control, and uh, associated with that, is uh, is this idea that the cost doesn't matter you know so so you get the sense that uh, the the empathy for the individual that will suffer as a result of this if the aim is right it doesn't really matter and this is a thing we see in all totalitarian uh, super utilitarian uh, uh, context so um I, I don't think it would have any any empathy in in that context yes i've heard the expression from my former friend Jason Giorgiani, uh, if you want to make an omelet, you've got to break a few eggs. Yes, I mean, I, I, I quite like an, an omelet myself now and then, but we're talking about, I think, the implications of of H.G. Wells' viewpoint, uh, given the proper circumstances, in order to establish this new world order. I think he would be will, they would be willing to destroy billions of people. I, I don't I, I don't have any, any any problem in understanding that because that's the kind of thing that they're saying. Um, the uh, also the uh, experimentation with Basilis. He wrote another essay called the Super Basilis. Uh, when, when when you look at the experimentation with transgenic research or Doctor Moreau or changing species. They're willing to do what uh, what Bernal talked about, explore their curiosity to the nth degree. It's not about the interest of other humans. And in this pursuit of power, there is no morality in it. There is no fundamental ethics. Now, you might say, well, oh, we have uh, university ethics, and this says we can't. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about the fundamental uh, principles or moral principles that determine human conduct. There's nothing here in Wells to stop it. So, the, does the end justify the means? Does it? Uh, are we justified in bombing the total, you know, carpet bombing Russia or uh, you know attacking Russia? And uh, Russia was a thing that he was he was promoting attacks on as well, or 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 indicating the strategic importance as all the British establishment have been doing, going back to the Crimean War before. 30,000 Irish people fighting out there. I mean, it's quite incredible. Another story. But uh, yes, it's totally unscrupulous. Uh, and why people would expect scientific managers to be scrupulous, 
to be concerned with human rights is beyond me because they've made it very, very clear. These people that have explained the agenda have made it clear that they're focusing on uh, they're focusing on the aims. They don't like what they see with people. They don't even like biology, which is quite remarkable. They're, they're against biology. They're against nature. Uh, they want to master nature, have total control. Even look at Bertrand Russell and he starts the scientific outlook, the book in 1931. And uh, in that he says, well, because science is advancing so much, we need to change society. You know, it doesn't necessarily follow. They're, they're utilizing a position of knowledge and power to gain power. And in the in, in the book, uh, in, in the book about uh, reconstruction, uh, he lays out, he says, what you have to do now to the scientists is gain control of the research funding and things. Like that. I mean, it's quite incredible. He really lays out the ingredients of military industrial complex. Uh, so I believe that people that subscribe to his viewpoint often ignore all, all the warts or don't care because there isn't any empathy there. So uh, although they say, oh, well, yeah, that's terrible, the little bits, or it's not important, okay, well, move on from that and look at what he's saying. And people like uh, Orwell, like C.S. Lewis, like Aldous Huxley, realize that this was a disaster. Now, the difference is, and here's the problem, that H.G. Wells laid out a blueprint. He laid out a plan, which is working. So although he was discontent, when he was di- when he was dying, because it hadn't materialized, it it was going to happen. The seeds had been sown, but if we look at his critics, they don't they haven't laid out a counter plan. There is no counter plan to this. Uh, there isn't even an adequate analysis of strategic analysis or a tactical analysis of how to deal with this monster that has uh, has been created. So. H.G. Wells is winning the game in historical terms. In future, he will be regarded as a uh, incredibly significant revolutionary uh, political theorist, and who also wrote some books along the way, uh, some, some popular books that they may be forgotten about. It'll be inverted, because really his influence. Uh, on people, you know, behind the attitude of people like Yuval Noah Harari, he's a kind of modern manifestation uh, of that kind of viewpoint. And it's very, it's very nasty. It leads to the idea of hackable humans, which I, I believe in, in, in two senses, in, 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 the se- in, in a butchery sense and, and in, a, in getting into people, because they begin to, the line becomes blurred. So, uh, unfortunately, Bearing in mind his connections, uh, he had connections with Roosevelt and other people as well. You you could make the argument that he was trying to get above all this, but uh, being willing to you know work with Stalin or, or, or kind of look at the positive side of Stalin and, and the Bolsheviks and beginning to work with the the most rapacious corporatists uh, around uh, and um, accepting that this model has has manifested itself it is the governance it wouldn't it didn't need a particular center to do he, although he he discussed geneva and other places and had basra and in, in the for for the technical control uh, the whole thing would be so set up that it wouldn't need this central government and anyway it wasn't democratic uh, it wasn't going to be democratic so you didn't need that access it was just a system of power which is why I've tried to explain it as a plantation of automatons but uh, the man 
is so industrious, so consistent, so hardworking, so imaginative in the pursuit of his own goals, so monomaniacal that he produced a blueprint that is determining uh, our world and our, our future, which is quite incredible. Uh, and it is one which is will be rootless uh, in relation to humans uh, and nature. There's no simply go back to to his. T- he, he says clearly in anticipations in 1901. Although he had to modify because it, it wasn't politic, he he says, well, if you know the weak and vulnerable, they have to go. You know, this is not a charitable institution. They're saying this. They're saying similar things again. So uh, again, if you're uh, weak or, or, or vulnerable or, or from a a group that he doesn't like or the, the the elite don't like it's not looking not looking good for you you know you're one of those useless eaters as as they use again which is quite incredible that mainstream people can begin to use terms or or, or suggestions like that uh, these days uh, in view of what happened uh, in 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 Hitler's Germany but uh, it hasn't gone away and he is the sire of this kind of revolutionary theory uh, who has been underestimated. The man has been underestimated in the significance of his achievement. He probably didn't even realize how successful he had been because we're talking about historical continuity and sometimes a theory or an idea operates on the, the long arc of uh, of history and it takes a while for it to unfold. So that's the, that's the, the problem in many senses. Well, I think it's fair to say, as, as you're pointing out, that we are living in an era in, in which the materialistic, manipulative, uh, oppressive, in many instances, worldview is on the ascendancy. And the, the antidote to that, which you've also pointed out, and I think we try to emphasize on this channel, is the mystical, the psychic, the uh, occult and esoteric perspective that uh, looks at the individual as being much, much more than a machine, but rather a being who partakes of the infinite. Yes, and... and that's that's our fundamentally shared value. It's the fundamental talisman. It's the fundamental protection. It's the fundamental antidote. Uh, my mystical accord starts off, and it started off with that idea about there's been a certain failure of spiritual evolution, and everything else follows on from that. And uh, inherent in that is the idea that we respect every individual as a spiritual being who's embodied, and and then. Anything else after that is secondary. Any other identity, any other issue comes after the recognition of the dignity of the individual, which in some way, and I think you believe as well, is written in the universe. It's part of a a divine matrix, if you like. In all the traditions, we are reflections of divine consciousness. We were a hologram of divine consciousness. So if we start off from a non-judgmental perspective from non-compartmentalized not putting people into categories we accept them as the individual with their own story their own experience their own unique characteristics their own problems their own insights uh, their own history uh, and accept them as valuable and, and accept them as spiritual individuals irrespective of what different compartment they come from whether they're uh, Catholic or pagan or Jewish or Islamic or or, or, or Wiccan or, or or whatever whatever the, the whole range of things. Uh, once they're not trying to do damage uh, to to other people, uh, w- they may have different perspectives about how to do things. They, but 
insofar as they accept spiritual consciousness, it's a, it's very, very important. And then we have to activate it. First, we have to believe in it, uh, which is important. That if we don't believe in our spiritual consciousness, and, and you, you have explained that in relation to parapsychology and parapsychology uh, experiments and how that works as well, but belief is, is critical and it's very, very powerful. And then we have to activate our spiritual consciousness. And, and that's where the, the animosphere, the imaginal world, the exploration of all those things that you've talked about, mapping and surveying, understanding the, the whole different dimensions, the multidimensional uh, dimensionality to it, the different perspectives, the historical perspectives, the parapsychological insight uh, from uh, good science in, in that context, from, from testimony, from stories, from all the things you've explored. Well, in there is the values, the, uh, the spirit, the spiritual consciousness, which is the, uh, whose absence is the cause of these problems. It's the absence of these things which lead people to believe that they have to shift. Like, for example, when Huxley and, and, and his student are, are saying, yes, we believe in natural selection, but all of a sudden they have to change to artificial selection. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It was a crisis of, conf, uh, of confidence produced by the demeaning of the world that an unduly narrow utilitarian uh, analysis of the doctrine or the principles of, of evolution or the theory of evolution came to. And, and we're paying the price of that, of that dispiriting. So I've always seen uh, your work as consistent with the defense and protection, elucidation, illumination, of all these dimensions of the individual human uh, and by cultivation, acceptance, recognition, discussion, dialogue about these issues, we create the conditions for a meaningful universe and also a, a, a world where we're not going to allow ourselves be subjugated to a kind of instrumental left brain idea of uh, what a human is, where the, the dignity is, is reduced and not be divided as well there's a very strong divisive force behind the kind of propagandist mechanistic system which which has decided that it's going to separate us separate us into a whole range of different groups so that the more we're fighting the more they can appear to be rational and come in and lord over all the all, all the fighting groups to set people against each other as they did in northern ireland to set catholics and protestants against each other in the colonial context uh, to create discord so they can say look look at them nasty religious people spiritual people fighting over there etc this these are these are tactics that systems can do we have to avoid we have to listen to people we have to have respect to other people and we have to to not be uh, not be dr driven into a knee-jerk reaction where we make assumptions because we've we've been informed by algorithms about what we should think if we start off with that proposition of accepting each individual and then seeking to activate our consciousness and then seeking to come into accord with other people and seeking to get the benefits of cooperation as opposed to, and not just at the corporate level that Wells was doing, but at an individual level. So we can help each other. We can help each other with our, with our struggles uh, for meaning, for sense. Well, then we can, we, we, we can create the uh, counterforce. And it shouldn't, it can't be based on violence. It, it can't be 
an evolutionary theory which is predicated on the eradication of other people of diversity and of people that you don't agree with and it can't be based on, on, on force because that's that's not consistent with free will or respecting of the dignity uh, of other people so so your work vindicates that and is in contrast to that scientism uh, and uh, I hope we're both trying to uh, to, to combat or to set up an alternative vision, which is which which is focused on science uh, as opposed to scientism, and combats the deadly aspect behind uh, behind this empire of scientism manifesting itself in in a destructive way. Well, I guess the paradox there is is to recognize the uh, spirit inside of the, the very people who are creating this scientistic worldview. I have to give credit to the man H.G. Wells. I, I mean, I don't want to to not accept that this man produced a vast body of work that a lot of people respect love that stimulated them that has given them pleasure given them entertainment uh, that then he has proceeded and to advocate a viewpoint to be open about it in fairness to the man he openly he didn't do it in secret it was an open conspiracy now the conspiracy might be behind closed doors but uh, in smoke-filled rooms but it was an open conspiracy he described exactly what he wanted to do and what he thought people should do, and the political systems. So the man was quite open about it. So he's been doing that, or he did it, over a 100 years ago, and more. So, uh, in fact, in many senses, I don't... These people did their job. They played their cards. And uh, it's like Jesus said, if you're neither hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. The critique is not of people who have a strong view on one thing and the people who oppose them. The critique is of people who don't apply their spiritual consciousness to the world affairs and say, no, well, I don't have a view on that or that they, they con uh, contribute inappropriately. So the fact that he did it, and you've talked about this in your yin-yang context and the complementarity of opposite, you could argue certainly that his doing this has brought to the nth degree the consequences of that viewpoint. So he has merely played out to the nth degree the consequence of an unduly instrumentalist view, a machine view of the human, of biology, of nature, as applied uh, to governance. So uh, I don't uh, disrespect the man for that. I don't uh, condemn him for that. I don't care what he did with his sexual relations. None of my business. Uh, and none of that is relevant. He, I, I can uh, forgive him for things that he said about the, the Catholics. That, that doesn't matter to the thing. I, I'm just focusing on this dangerous political philosophy uh, and this dangerous, dangerous instrumental uh, philosophy which has taken over the world. But on, on many other sense, I have to give the man enormous credit for, for what he did. He can't be dismissed. He must be he must be celebrated for his industri industriousness and his, 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 uh, his contribution has to be regarded as significant. It can't be disregarded. So uh, in that sense, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing personal about it. It's only business. <laughs> well, James Tunney, once again, a delightful and profound conversation. I so much enjoy 
going deeper and deeper and wider and wider in our discussions. Uh, I think we're enriching each other. At least I feel I'm being enriched, but I'm uh, really thrilled to be able to share these conversations with the New Thinking Aloud audience. So once again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for being with me today. Thanks, Jeff. And yes, I think the exploration through dialogue is the opportunity we have that I can be informed by your views, by the vast experience you have, the vast context, the, the vast links uh, to, to, to people who are active, who are agents like Hel Wells was, or in the context of discussions about what these things mean in reality, as you, you have talked about, what, what's the implication of these views is uh, it, very critical. And we, both, we have both learned uh, through these processes. And in the end, uh, there is a lot of excitement there about the fact that uh, to to people to people who are watching the uh, this is a real thing this thing about the spirit and about consciousness is is a real active force within them that people have been blinded to so all of this i hope a debate and a discussion and a dialogue my growing you're growing uh, this dialogue that that's the reason why we have it and it's very very powerful and we must do so now so Thanks again, as always. I, I always treasure, and this was a this was an important one we, we've touched on for a long time. So I, I'm I'm glad we got the chance to, to to elaborate a bit more. Thank you very much. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. <laughs> On June 1st, we've just released issue number two of the New Thinking Aloud quarterly magazine. You can download a free copy at the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website, newthinkingaloud.org.